So September 27, 2019, in Hillsboro, North Carolina, we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 10, Chapter 11, The Childhood Pastimes of Krishna, Text 55. Aho Batasya Balasya Bahava Mrityavo Bhavan Apyasid Vipriyantesham Kritam Purvam Yatobayam Aho Bata It is very astonishing Asya of this, Balasya, Krishna, Bahavaha, many, many, Mrityavaha, causes of death, Abhavan, appeared, Api, still, Asit, there was, Vipriyam, the cause of death, Tesham, of them, Kritam, done, Purvam, formerly, Yataha, from which, Bhayam, there was fear of death. Translation, the cowherd men, headed by Nandamarj, began to contemplate. It is very astonishing that although this boy Krishna has many times faced many varied causes of death, by the grace of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, it was these causes of fear that were killed instead of him. Purport. The coward men innocently thought, because our Krishna is innocent, the causes of death that appeared before him were themselves killed instead of Krishna. This is the greatest grace of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Aho Bhattasya Bhalasya Bhavo Mirjavo Bhavan Apyasid Vipriyamtesham Kritam Purvam Yito Bhayam. The cowherd men headed by Nandamarj began to contemplate. It is very astonishing that although this boy Krishna has many times faced many varied causes of death, by the grace of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, it was these causes of fear that were killed instead of him. So here the adults in Vrindavan are speaking about Krishna as if they were speaking about an ordinary person. They're, they're referring to Balasya of this child. Uh, they're not speaking about Krishna as God. And the implication here is that it was God who saved him, although that's not uh, specifically in the Sanskrit. So this is the way we feel when somebody, that we, you know, some innocent person, is attacked and is saved, we say, oh, God saved him. It's Krishna's, Krishna's mercy. Here they wouldn't say it's Krishna's mercy that Krishna was saved. But we would say it's, it's Krishna's mercy that the person has been saved. And here we see some indication of, of two things. We see some indication of the intimate love of the residents of Vrindavan for Krishna, where they think, oh, he was saved because he was innocent, he was saved by the hand of God. And also some indication here of how the laws of the universe work. So these people were ostensibly villagers, cowherds, 
uh, not very well-educated people. Krishna doesn't get educated until he goes to Mathura. And he doesn't have any formal education. He had some education, obviously, because like the cowherd women would chant mantras to protect Krishna, which they had learned from the brahmanas. So it's not that they had no education at all. But we don't read anything about Krishna going to school or some sort of a formal schooling for these villagers. And yet they understood about the laws of karma. They understood how the laws of the universe work. Whereas today, uh, like I went yesterday to NC State, and I gave a lecture about karma. Karma. And it was fascinating because most of these students, they're all in university. They're all in a university in the United States. Most of them were undergrads, but there were some graduate students there and even some postdoctoral students there. But this was very new information to them, to understand something about karma. But here we see that thousands of years ago, these villagers, without any formal schooling at all, they had some idea of this laws of the universe. And this is a very important part of our philosophy of Krishna consciousness, because one of the main arguments, in fact, the only salient argument of the atheists is that it appears that innocent people suffer, isn't it? There's no other atheistic argument that really holds any water. I mean, to say that life arose spontaneously from matter and there was no intelligent hand behind the varieties of life in this universe just doesn't make the slightest bit of sense to a thinking person. But if you're going to say, well, if there's a God who's powerful enough to make the universe, isn't he powerful enough to make a nice universe? Wouldn't he be powerful enough to make it so there isn't all the suffering in the universe? I mean, we do that. When we set up something, we set up something to try to eliminate all suffering, isn't it? We build a building, so we're building this building. We want to make sure it has light. We want to make sure it's warm in the winter and cool in the summer, that there's good ways of ingress and egress. The government is concerned about these things. Uh, of course, we, we're not unlimited in our power. But we feel if I was unlimited in my power, I would make sure that nobody suffered, isn't it? Wouldn't we do that? Yeah? yeah. If I had unlimited power, then I would destroy all poverty and disease and uh, unfairness in the world. So why doesn't God do that? That's the way we're, we're looking at things. And so here, the cowherd, uh, the adults among the cowherds, are explaining that if the person's actually innocent, they cannot be harmed even by someone who's harmful. Rather, the person who tries to harm them will be harmed instead. And this is one of the principles of karma. Therefore, we can understand if somebody's actually harmed, they're not completely innocent. Now, of course, to understand that, we have to know that there's more than one life. Because in this life, people do appear to be completely innocent. I mean, a lot of harm in this world is done to young children who haven't had any opportunity or uh, intelligence to do anything wrong, right? Like I'm with my little grandson who's only one and a half years old, and he has no sense of moral or ethical right and wrong. I mean, those things are are meaningless to a child that young. And yet we see that even children that small 
who haven't even mastered language, you know, they may be sexually abused, they may be physically abused, they may be get the victim of some sort of terrible disease, they may be trafficked, their parents may be killed. I mean, all these horrific things that we hear happening to people who by any kind of measure are completely innocent. But here the cowherd adults in Vrindavan are understanding that if we're actually innocent, we cannot be harmed. And we've all had this experience that someone has tried to harm us and failed. Yes? Everybody's had that experience? You know, that someone tried to hurt us in some way, damage our reputation, or even hurt us physically, and they were just not successful. It it just didn't work. It it fizzled. There, There was no real effect. Like we've also had experience of people trying to help us, and it was ineffective. Yes? Has everyone had this experience that someone tried to do good for us and it just just didn't work? And we've had the experience from our side. You know, we've all tried to do good for others and it just just didn't work. It was ineffective. You know, sometimes you can see exactly what somebody's doing wrong and exactly what's going to happen to them and you give them good advice and you say, look, you know, you're, you're walking off the edge of a cliff. There's a cliff. You're going to fall down. You, you, you need to change your course. And the person just pays absolutely no attention to you and falls off the cliff. Yes? I mean, figuratively, obviously. And, and, and perhaps, if we're, if we're honest, we'd also say that sometimes we've been malicious. That sometimes we actually desired harm for people. I mean, I know none of us ever want to admit that. But if we're fully honest, we'd say sometimes we desired harm to come to people, and maybe sometimes we actively participated. Oh, you know that person, they did this, they did that. You, you should know, you know, you should know about them. And I mean, I've definitely done that, for which I've had to apologize. But sometimes, even when we're malicious and we try to hurt people, it, it's ineffective. Right? And sometimes we're very frustrated by that. One of, the, one of the frustrations that I hear repeatedly in the Hare Krishna movement is, you know, this, this other devotee has done something wrong and I tried to get them punished in some way, but it didn't work. People still respect them. Yeah? Isn't that one of the, the big complaints? Right? I, I wasn't able to be effective in hurting this person who deserves to be hurt. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that people can only be hurt or helped if it's the will of God. You know, and, and from our perspective, innocent people don't get the help that they deserve, and guilty people don't get the punishment that they deserve. But there actually is some higher law that determines who gets punished and who gets rewarded. Of course, sometimes these things are just delayed for some reason. You know, they're just delayed. Just like with Hiranyakashipu. Hiranyakashipu was certainly guilty, but he went on for many years acting heinously before he was punished. So that also happens. Or with Kamsa, when Krishna told the demigods, I'm going to kill Kamsa, but if you do the math, and you think of, okay, Krishna tells the demigods he's going to kill Kamsa, he tells them, take birth on the earth, prepare for my arrival. So Vasudev Devaki, they take birth, they have to grow up. You know, I'm sure Vasudev was already in his 20s by the time he married Devaki. Uh, I'm not sure if he, he married, how many wives did he have? 16? So I'm not sure if he was married to some of them before he married Devaki, but he was 
he must have been at least in his 20s. So we have to figure, let's say Vasudeva was 25 years old, then Krishna's the eighth child, so then we're adding eight years to that, so that's going to be then 33 years. Then Krishna goes to Vrindavan, and then he's in Vrindavan for either 11 years or 16 years, depending on how you want to calculate it. But even if you say 11 years, then that's 44 years that transpire between the time Krishna says to the demigods, I'm going to go to earth and take care of this, and the time that Kamsa is actually killed. Uh, so sometimes that also happens. and uh, it, It's interesting that when we see this happen to others, we may be very upset, but when it happens to ourselves, we're very grateful. You know, when I do something wrong and I don't immediately get punished from Krishna, I'm grateful that he's giving me some time to rectify myself, isn't it? Right? I mean, when we deal with children, we're like that. When a child does something wrong, we usually, you know, generally, in most circumstances, we ask the child to fix it themselves before we impose some sort of punishment on them. So we generally don't say to a child, okay, you did something wrong, immediately go stand in the corner for whatever, or whatever kind of punishment. Or, uh, you know, we'll say, hey, could you give that back? Look, look, you grabbed the toy from your brother's hand. That wasn't very nice. Would, would you give it back and say you're sorry, please? No, I'm not going to do that. Look, well, we need to do that. This is how we behave. And, you know, you, you try in different ways to work with them. Then after a while you say, well, okay, look, you've got to go to your room for a while and think about how you're behaving before you can play with your brother anymore. But we don't do that, as I said, generally speaking, we don't do that immediately. And we're very grateful when Krishna works like that with us. You know, one time on the uh, Govardhan Puja, when I was in Auckland, I was telling the story of Govardhan Puja and how Indra was so convinced that the residents of Vrindavan had offended him. And it took him a while to understand that he was the offender. And I said that I had been part of a, a group, like a committee of devotees at one point, and... I had left that group because I was convinced that they had offended me. I mean, I was really convinced that they had offended me, and therefore I had left. And ten years later, I realized that I had been the offender. You know, I mean, it was, it was quite interesting. And then I called the members of the group, and I apologized. So I, I gave that as an example, that we can be convinced that we've been offended when actually we're the offender. And at the end of the class, there was one one gentleman who said to me, why would Krishna allow somebody to stay for 10 years in the Hare Krishna movement if they were committing offenses? And I just started cracking up. I said, you're talking about me, right? And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm not talking about you, but everybody was laughing. I said, yes, of course you're talking about me because I told my story. I said, because Krishna gave me a chance to figure it out myself and gave me a chance to rectify it. And if he had immediately thrown, thrown me out when I was offensive, you know, that wouldn't have been kindness on his part. So when it happens to us, we're very, very grateful that our punishment is delayed and that we're given some chance to rectify on our own. And when it comes to us, we're very grateful that nobody can hurt us if we don't deserve to be hurt. But when it comes to other people, we may become very upset about this. You know, why doesn't this offensive person get punished immediately and severely? And why can't I be the agent of justice in the world in the way that I want and how I want? 
So it's, uh, therefore there's this golden rule in every society that we should treat others the way we want to be treated. Of course, that involves being able to see ourselves honestly, which generally uh, we do not. The other really interesting thing about the law of karma is that actually I can't cause any harm or any benefit to anybody. Because if people only get the harm or the benefit that they deserve by their own actions, then they're harming themselves or they're benefiting themselves. And I'm simply the agent. It's just like, while I'm here, I've ordered things from some online shops, and it gets delivered to me. So the, you know, UPS or DHL or FedEx or whatever, UPS, uh, USPS person who delivers it, they're not responsible for what they deliver. You know, if they deliver something that was, that I ordered by mistake, I made some miscalculation in my order, that's not their responsibility. And they can't deliver something, I mean, of course, we have mistakes in human society, but they can't deliver something to me that I didn't order. And they can't not deliver something to me that I did order. So in the same way, I can only do good or harm to others as they have ordered. I'm just a delivery person. So when I do good to others, who am I really doing good for? Myself. Myself. If I act as the agent of your good karma, what I'm doing is getting good karma for myself. And when I act as the agent of your bad karma, what I'm doing is generating bad karma for myself. But I'm not changing your destiny. I I can't. If I could change your destiny, then I would be more powerful than God. And there wouldn't be a God in control. So Prabhupada says, you are a foolish person who think that you can harm others. Actually, you're only harming yourself. Or you're only doing good to yourself. Now, if we really look at the law of karma, it gets exactly very depressing. Because even though I can generate good karma for myself, I do that only with some sort of tapasya. There's some sort of difficulty I have to go through in order to get good karma. Isn't it? Because there's an equal and opposite reaction. So doing good for others that generates good karma for myself involves some kind of sacrifice on my part. It was some kind of willing suffering. And you know what? Whatever we enjoy, there's an equal and opposite amount of difficulty involved with it. Either in being able to do the thing in the first place or just because of the nature of material enjoyment. Everything in the universe materially is in balance. Energy is right. Matter is not created or destroyed. It just changes form. So um, with the law of karma, we don't really do any good or harm to anyone, ourselves, or anybody else. Everything gets back into balance. And it's, it's actually quite disturbing. Nothing ever goes forward. Like Lord Brahma wakes up in the morning and recreates the universe, and when he goes to bed at night, it all falls apart. And then he has to recreate it again, and then it all falls apart again, and then he has to recreate it again, and then it all falls apart again. There's no actual improvement. Does this make sense to anybody? It's not that things are actually getting better. 
This, it's an illusion. It's an illusion that on the material level I can make things better. Whatever I do to make things better for myself, I've had to pay for. So there's an equal amount of suffering. But we want to be able to make things better. We want to be able to make an improvement that doesn't have some concomitant difficulty associated with it. And we want to be able to do this for ourselves and for others. This is a natural inclination of any sane and reasonable human being. I want my life to get better and better, and I want to be the agent of good for others. Do we all feel like this? Very much so. Right? But materially, it's not possible. You're a fool if you think you're the doer of anything in this world. It's just that the modes of nature are just moving things around. But how, where does this inclination come from that we want some sort of absolute good without concomitant difficulty? And that I want to be an agent. I, I want to be a doer. I, I want to matter. I want to have some significance. It comes from the fact that on the spiritual level this is possible. Krishna says in this endeavor there is no loss or diminution. In spiritual life there's no loss and there's no diminution. You don't have to pay for spiritual life. I mean, we might think that, well, yes, you have to do different austerities also in spiritual life. But there really is no payment. The only payment, Rupa Goswami says, is Greed is a desire for it. That's all. There, there's no other payment. There's no rituals. There's no austerity. There's, no, there's nothing that can pay for spiritual life. Krishna says this in the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. You, you can't know me through these things. You can know me through desire. That, what? Through like, what does he say? I don't have a Bhagavad Gita handy. Through austerities, through worship, through penances, through rituals. What, end of the 11th chapter, yes. Of course, it's interesting that Prabhupada comments that all of those are used in bhakti. But we can't, we can't pay for bhakti. It's not something you pay for. It, it's already part of us. It's already in us. It's already who we are. The only so-called payment is giving up our false ego, which isn't a payment at all. It, it, it's like, you know... It's like if you're touching a hot stove and getting burned and removing your hand from the hot stove. That, that's not a payment. We perceive it as an austerity. We perceive giving up our false ego as an austerity. But that's, you know, that's our idiocy. That I'm thinking it's a payment to give up the thing that's causing me distress. <laughs> to give up the source of my pain is, is a payment. So there, there's no negativity and bhakti keeps expanding and getting better and better and better and better and better with, with no suffering associated with it. And according to Vishnu Chakravati Thakura, Madhurya Kadamani, I can be the agent for other people getting bhakti. He says the Lord is neutral. But if a devotee wants to give bhakti to someone, if a devotee gives someone mercy, Krishna's mercy follows the mercy of a devotee, and then that person gets bhakti. So I can be the agent of absolute good without concomitant suffering for myself, 
and I can be the agent of an absolute increase of good for someone else that they don't deserve. Isn't that what mercy means? Doesn't mercy mean undeserved good? Yes. They haven't paid for it. And I can be the agent of undeserved good, actual good, that they haven't paid for. That nobody's paid for. I mean, the Christians talk about Jesus paid for it. Jesus, nobody paid for it. It doesn't need to be paid for. It's an intrinsic part of the self. And that's totally out of the law of karma. Karmadi nirdahati kintu bhakti Bhakti has nothing to do with this law of karma at, at all. There's no relationship to it. It doesn't operate by the same laws. It, it's, a, it's a different thing altogether. So the coward men here, I mean, it says the coward men, although the previous verse talked about both the men and their wives. These adults in Vrindavan, they're thinking that Krishna's under the law of karma. And they're thinking, because he's innocent, therefore, those who try to hurt him were themselves hurt. They're, they're seeing like that, out of their affection. I mean, we define the Mayavadis as someone who thinks that when God comes, he takes a material form and he's under the laws of nature. And that that's so offensive, that that's the greatest offense to the Lord. But this attitude of the adults in Vrindavan is not a Mayavada offense. It's an affection. That it's just so affectionate that they're they're thinking like this about their little Krishna. And it's it, and this of course is a mystery to people. Like when Krishna says Patram Pushpam Palam Toyam Yome Bhakti Prajati and the people Oh God is hungry? Krishna's hungry? How can he be God? He wants to eat some fruit. Huh? So it's very difficult to explain this yoga maya of the residents of Vrindavan. It's, it's in a completely different category than people who misunderstand Krishna. So it's, as we said uh, yesterday, Prabhupada said if we can take up this mood of the residents of Vrindavan even to a minute degree, then our life is successful. And so we simultaneously understand the totally transcendent nature of bhakti, and we try to work as much as we can on the bhakti platform rather than on the karma platform. And at the same time, in bhakti, we develop this intimate relationship with Krishna where we lose awareness that we're dealing with God on some kind of transcendental platform and we just uh, have this sweetness of intimacy. So there's now... According to my watch, 10 minutes, but according to that clock, maybe 8. So. I'd like to ask a question. Yes. It's basically... Oh, let's get the mic. Well, get the mic. Okay, let's make the question for you so others can also ask the question. There's 9 minutes. I was wondering if you could share with us the reactions uh, well, I didn't talk about this aspect of karma. Oh, she asked for the reactions of the students when I talked about karma. I didn't talk about this aspect of karma. So I explained it differently than I... Well, I have talked about this to students when I was at um, 
University of Colorado in Denver. I gave a talk there about karma very much like what I talked about here, and they were very enthusiastic. What I talked about there was simply the difference between v-karma, karma, and akarma, and the relationship of modes and bhakti to the different kinds of action. How Thomas incites to v-karma, how rajas incites to karma, how sattva incites to karma, and sometimes akarma, and how bhakti puts you in akarma. And just describing the differences between the three modes and bhakti. And they were very enthusiastic. And they asked one of the persons at the end, said, you mentioned connecting with our source and the divine through bhakti yoga. Can you tell me more about it? So then I talked about the universal form, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. And then they all asked to hear more about Bhagavan. So I talked more about Bhagavan. And we had over 50 people there, and at least 10 of them came up to me afterwards with more questions and, and more discussions. So it, was, it went very well. I think most of them were. Uh, well, I also, I also explained it through dramatization. So I actually dramatized each of the modes in bhakti. And then uh, I gave them names. So Thomas is Thomas, and Rajas is Roger. And Sattva, I had to call him Sam. I, I have been really struggling to find a good name for Sattva. In English, but so you got you know Thomas, Roger, and Sam, who influence our ego. So you can have an ego, a Roger ego, a Thomas ego, or a Sam ego, that then changes your, your view of reality and induces you to act in in v karma. And I really like to use the Sanskrit words because there it opens up more variety of meaning, and it can induce you to act in v karma, karma, or or vikarma or karma, but only when you're in bhakti can you act in a karma. And yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Got to bed a little late, but it was a lot of fun. So, I think a poor Prabhu has a question. Yeah, so, so you were able to talk a little bit about Bhagavan. Right? I definitely talked about bhakti and Bhagavan, yes. I don't like talking without talking something about bhakti and Bhagavan. Yes, perfect. Okay, so you talked about the false ego, so of In course, the false ego. So, um, and this is one of our main problems. So, can you say a little bit more about how to get rid of that thing? Uh, I don't know. I'm still working on it, perfect. So I don't know. You know, it's the person who eats sugar shouldn't tell people to give up sugar. So I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I have to fast some sugar and have him come back in a week. You know that story? Yeah. So I don't know. I'm still dealing with my false ego. And sometimes he's under the control of Thomas and sometimes Roger and sometimes Sam. Like the devotee said to Prabhupada, you know, sometimes we fall into Maya. Prabhupada said, you're always in Maya. Sometimes you fall into Krishna. So at, at least the moments when by the mercy of Srila Prabhupada I fall into Krishna... I can, I can speak from the, on the basis of that, that in those moments one sees the false ego as something separate from oneself. One sees that the false ego has nothing to do with oneself. And one sees it as, indeed, false. One sees it as false. One sees it as something that, that's not part of our own identity, 
that it does not represent our real desires, and you just look at it and go, ugh, I'm not listening to you. I'm not not listening to you. I'm not going to act under your uh, direction. I found it very helpful to remember that Adoita Acharya is Sadashiva, and Shiva is the lord of the false ego. And Adoita Acharya has this nice verse, Chaitanya Radasamuri, Chaitanya Radasa, Chaitanya Radasamuri, Tanya Radasa, My identity is as a servant of Lord Chaitanya, as a servant of Lord Chaitanya, as a servant of Lord Chaitanya, and a servant of his servants. So every day I pray to Lord Shiva Sarvapati Vinirmuktan Tarpartena Nirmala Rishikesha Rishikena Sevana Bhakti Ruchate. You are the Lord of the false ego. Please remove this, this false identity and let me act in my real identity. And sometimes, by the grace of Srila Prabhupada, sometimes I'm able to actually have that view. That way, that, that's something false. That's, that's not me. That's not who I am. It, is, it, it doesn't represent anything of me. And just kind of look at it as, wow, Krishna's energy is so interesting. <laughs> you know, I think it's something like if a person's reading a book or watching a movie or watching a drama, or, you know, and, all, and you realize this is just fake. It's just fake. It's, it's just a facade. It's... Like when I was 10, I went on the set of a, a TV show that I had watched. I went to Hollywood, I went on the set. And it's all fake. When you're seeing it on TV, it looks like they walk up the stairs to the bedroom, but when you see the set, they walk up the stairs to nothing. And on TV, it looked like they were doing magic. And something appears, but on the actual set, you see that they do do-do-do-do and then the rabbit walks onto the stage. You know, it's, you see that it's all phony. So Prabhupada says sometimes we see the naked form of Maya. Did you have a question? I was wondering, given that we fall into Krishna sometimes, it seems that it's possible that uh, to lose sight of the fact that we are wanting to develop a relationship that's so much higher than what we have access to normally. And if we're not actually trying to develop the same quality of relationship within our actual families and, and relation, friendships and things like that, then what are we actually aspiring for? And I feel like sometimes devotees may think, oh, all that matters is my relationship so-called with Krishna that I imagine that I follow these rules or whatever without actually realizing that how one acts with, you know, is there any, any um, Shastra, Praman, anything like yeah, that? Yeah, so you're, you're saying, what I hear you're saying is that we think that God is so transcendent that nothing in the world is relevant. Mm-hmm. But we have an Achincha Vedic philosophy. God is fully transcendent, but he's also fully manifest in this world. So how we treat not only other devotees, how we treat other humans, how we treat animals, how we treat plants, how I treat the table. If Krishna is in every atom, can he feel when I'm touching the table? 
Yes, of course you can. The, the table can't feel that I'm touching it. You know, if, if you shake my hand, I can feel that, and Krishna can also feel that, yeah? When I touch the table, the table can't feel it, but Krishna can feel it. So Krishna is, is aware of how I'm dealing with everyone and everything. And if I really want to develop my relationship with Krishna, you know, if I go to your house and I kick your furniture around and I insult your family members, it's going to be pretty hard for me to have a relationship with you. Thank you.